0: Good morning. I'm Pastor Craig. I, I hail. Uh, hey, is that too loud? I don't know what to do, but keep talking. Keep talking. Hail from uh, New Haven, Connecticut. So it's great to be here. I'm realizing that uh, I'm preaching on a passage from Hebrews with a lot of boating analogies. And the book itself has a lot of boating analogies. And I don't know anything about boating. And I'm preaching in the Hamptons. Um, so you may have to give me some grace if I make some faux pas when it comes to boating and all of this business. But uh, I grew up in Indiana, and we don't, uh, we don't have much water there. And so I'm asking, do you have an anchor for your soul? And it's a question that I think can confront us in the culture that we are in as pretty striking, because we live in a world with intended obsolescence. Right? That's the phrase in business when things are meant to decay. My, my grandma's freezer, we just moved her out of her house, long-time house. Her freezer, upright freezer, was 60 years old and still running. And they don't make things like that anymore, right, as they say. We live in a world that is deep down, I think it gets into our psyche, that things are meant to change and be restless and more restless and more restless. And it gets us to want to buy more things and to assume that things will never, ever be boring. That's the cardinal sin of the culture, right? Boredom. Don't ever let your consumers be bored. You should never be bored, especially in church. Don't ever get bored at a sermon. It better be entertaining and dynamic and always grabbing you but what does that do to our soul what do you think it does i think in a lot of ways it brings our culture to a lot of despair to a lot of hopelessness as pascal famously said all of humanity's problems stem from their inability to sit quietly in a room alone And he said that 400 years ago. That's crazy. So I do think that we uh, ought to be ready to hear this word that offers this incredible anchor. That talks about God as an absolute steadfast God. A God that does not waver and wants to give us an assurance of our hope. So let's hear this passage from Hebrews 6, it's down at the bottom of that page in your bulletin. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise for this day, this day that you have set apart to be worshiped. We thank you for the songs of worship that you have no rival. We thank you that we can come to you honestly and confess our sins. And Lord, we ask now, that you would speak to us. Take your word and may your Holy Spirit be mighty. May you comfort the brokenhearted. May you challenge the stubborn and stiff-necked. And may your spirit speak through the word that you inspired. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm, we're in the, the middle of the book of Hebrews, so I'll give you a real quick uh, idea of the context. The book of Hebrews is seems to have been written to a congregation mixed uh, uh, mixed up of Christians and Jewish Christians. And so the temptation for a lot of them was to fall back away from confessing Christ as Lord and to fall back into their Judaism. And for them, that would have been a way to escape some persecution because Judaism in the culture would have been more respectable. It was more ancient. It was seen as just more, to the Roman culture, it was seen as more respectable. And so the temptation for them Over and over, we read in the letter, is to drift away from Christ. And that's where you get a lot of the boating analogies. They drift away slowly. And the the author, over and over, is concerned that, not that they will one day wake up and say, all right, I'm going to, let's see what sins I can do today. Let's see how I can deny Jesus today. We don't wake up like that. We slowly drift away. Little by little. It's so over and over in the book of Hebrews, we are uh, encouraged to see the absolute supremacy of Christ and the absolute hopelessness of anything else. Nothing compares to Christ. Not Moses, not Abraham, not Joshua, not the angels, not the law. He goes through all of these different aspects of the Old Testament and says, don't you realize who Jesus is? And then we come to this passage in chapter 6. The first part of chapter 6, you may be glad I'm not preaching on that, that's one of the most stern, strict, hard-to-understand warnings in the whole New Testament. But it's really surprising to me that you have this strict command, do not be like those who fall away, that is then followed by this passage. He addresses them as beloved right before that. Beloved, I am sure of better things for you. I want you not to grow sluggish, but to hope. And so the the passage really is about hope, and I want us to look at what hope is. Is it just wishful thinking? It's such a weak word. Maybe you heard, the first time you heard hope, right, just now, don't you think it's going to be kind of lame? We use hope in such Weak terms. I hope there's not going to be traffic on the way to the beach. But we have no idea. You don't really think there won't be traffic, right? It's a weak word, I think. So I want to try to recapture what scripture is after when it says hope. It should be a robust word. So first he draws our attention to Abraham. Abraham first is called in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. I love the response that Abram gives. Hope wants to, he wants us to see that hope imitates Abraham. And in Genesis 15 that we heard read, just now, you may have missed a little bit of what's going on. That's where you, you have this promise look up to the stars as if you can count them. That will be your, uh, your, your kids, children, ancestors. But then there's this bizarre passage about the animals. Did you catch that? The passage that was just read? The turtle dove and the pigeon, and then Abram falls asleep. What's going on there? It's actually an amazing thing that's going on there we see that this is a ceremony of how they would uh, enter into a treaty in the ancient world, in this part of the world. So if you were a powerful nation and a less powerful nation was going to be entering a treaty with you, the less powerful nation would provide animals like this, would kill them, sacrifice them, split them apart, and would walk through the animals as if to say, if I break this treaty... If I break this covenant, let it be unto me as it is to these animals. It's a kind of oath. It's saying, I will keep my end of the bargain. I will keep my end of the treaty. And if I don't, you can kill me like these animals. But what happens in Genesis 15? Abraham gets the the animals, he splits them, but then he falls asleep. And God passes through. God passes through. What is he saying there? He's saying that he's going to take on the burden of the covenant. He's going to take on the burden of the promise. That's why we call this promise to Abram unconditional. And this is a glimpse into the gracious condescension of God that is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And so we have this, this passage about hope, but the hope has to have an object. Something that it's clinging to. And the thing that Abram is clinging to is this incredibly gracious, condescending God that comes down to our level and promises. And so it promises this incredible blessing. It even, God even swears by himself. He raises his right hand, as it were, um, to swear by himself. There's all this legal language in this passage, an oath for confirmation. God, God doesn't have to swear by anything. He can just say something and we should trust it. But he goes out of his way to say, I swear by my own name. Trust me. Trust this word that I'm saying to you. So hope imitates Abraham and it holds fast. We saw that a little later on in the passage. We are to have strong encouragement, verse 18, to hold fast to the hope that is set before you? What is the hope that you hold fast to? We all have different sorts of hope. Sometimes it's just traffic, or we hope in Amazon because they have a decent reputation, and if we pay them, they're going to give us what we need. We hope in, what, our employer. We work a certain amount of hours, and they're going to give us our wages. We want proof that the thing that we hope in is reliable. And if someone hopes in you, you want to prove to them that you will be reliable. I think about this with my kids. I have three little kids, and, uh, well, they're not so little anymore, but our, our youngest is four and a half, and it's easy for him to hope in me because to him, he's still young enough. He thinks I am the strongest, the fastest, the tallest man in the world, pretty much. I told him about Hussein Bolt. I'm not faster than him, but... It's easy for him to hope in me. But the 8-year-old and the 10-year-old, they're, they're starting to get a little suspicious. They realize, well, I've met a dad that's taller than my dad, and he's not maybe that reliable all the time. But we want that link, the, the link between our hope and the object that we are hoping in to be unbreakable, right? Right? We want that in romance. We want that in our family. And the fact that we are told to hold fast to the promise of God is God saying, you can hold fast in me because I will never let you go. That that link is unbreakable. That the object, that the promise of God that we are to hope in, we can trust, we can hold fast to cling to. And then it gives us two, two ways in which we are to hold fast. The first one is about taking refuge. And if you think about that idea of refuge, it says, it almost describes believers as those who flee for refuge. I love that description of a believer. What is a Christian? Someone who flees for refuge in Christ. Someone who's fleeing for refuge is going to be in the midst of a storm. You don't need a refuge if your life is perfect and you have no need to get out of the storm. But a Christian is one who should expect suffering and trials and temptations, but we have a place to flee. And whenever I hear that word refuge, I'm I'm reminded of this song called Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. I've been on a kick lately. And it's an amazing song. It got retuned by Indelible Grace, but it was written by this woman named Ann Steele, who apparently was a very famous hymn writer in the 1800s. This Baptist woman, her mother died when she was three. By 14, she seems to have struggled with chronic malaria. She had painful stomach problems. She was confined to her chamber for the last several years of her life. But she wrote all of these amazing Thou lovely source of true delight. He lives. Our great Redeemer lives. Apparently there was an Episcopal hymnal uh, that had 150 hymns total. 59 were written by Ann Steele. And she wrote this one called Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. Let me just read. I won't sing it. Don't worry. But let me just read some of the words to you. On thee when sorrows rise... On thee, when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. To thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone can heal. Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. But oh, when gloomy doubts prevail, I fear to call thee mine. I love how honest she is. She's telling God, I doubt you. I fear But the springs of comfort seem to fail, and all my hopes decline. Yet, gracious God, where shall I flee? Thou art my only trust, and still my soul would cleave to thee. Thou prostrate in the dust. She realizes she has nowhere else to go. Are you at that point? Or do you have a lot of other places that you flee to? a lot of other people that you flee to? Do you think that there are a lot of other competing hopes in your life that may just well be as reliable as God? I think of refuge, and maybe we think of it as a passive thing, and yeah, it is a passive thing, but there is a lot of activity in being hopeful and taking refuge because you got to flee there. you got to crawl through the mud, or you got to run desperately to your refuge. And you're going to run to the refuge to the degree that you can trust it. To the degree that you think God is good and trustworthy and holy and will actually work all things for your good in his glory. What would it mean for you to trust that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is your refuge and reliable hope? But finally, he's not only our hope, in a way that he is our refuge. We are brought to this amazing conclusion in the passage by seeing that Jesus literally is our hope. And that's not just the Sunday school response, what's your hope, Jesus. There's an amazing thing that happens, and I hope you caught it at the end of this passage. Verse 19 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now he brings us to Abraham at the beginning, but now we're actually told we have something better than Abraham. We don't just have a word to believe. We have the word itself become flesh. The word itself has become fleshed in Jesus. And in Genesis 22, the passage where God swears by himself, Genesis 22 is the passage of the binding of Isaac, where Abraham, supposed to receive all of his descendants through Isaac, goes up to the mountain and is about to kill Isaac as a sacrifice to God, and God stops him. And listen to what God says to him right as he's raising the knife and then is stopped by the angel God says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then he swears by himself and gives him the promise of his descendants. But do you see what's happened now in Jesus? We actually can say that to God. We can say to God the Father, I see now. Because of the cross, you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. That is how trustworthy and reliable our God is. A ram was not provided at the last minute for Jesus. Jesus became that fulfillment of the sacrifice. And yet there's more. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor because Jesus is a forerunner. And that word forerunner comes from the boating world of the day. In the boating world of the day, maybe you know this already, but a forerunner was like a little vessel. That if the tide was too high and the big ship couldn't come into the harbor, the little vessel would take the anchor. Would take the anchor from the large ship and bring it safely into the harbor And then the big ship would wait for the tide to get lower, whatever tides do. And then it could arrive into the harbor safely. That's what Jesus is. He is our forerunner. And so you could ask, where is Jesus now? Some people think a better question is to ask, when is Jesus now? It's like Jesus went into the future, into heaven And we are secured to him, linked to him by faith. He went behind the veil into the Holy of Holies, the place where the high priest could only go once a year. He went there, tore the veil that we may be in the immediate presence of God. And now we wait. Now we persevere. We hope we take refuge in God because we know we can trust him. We know we can trust him because of this table. And so what is it that you hope in? What is it that you anchor your soul in? There will be a day when hope will be redundant. It will be unnecessary. Famous line, right, in First Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love abide. But at the very end, the resurrection, in the time of heaven, we won't need faith and hope, because we'll be face to face with God. It will be a world of love. But until that time, we can trust, just like this passage at the front of your bulletin says, Jesus ascended into heaven to appear for us in God's presence. Atonement was not complete until Jesus stood before God on our behalf. Jesus, our priest and mediator, appears in the presence of God, bearing our names as a memorial to God. He is the sign, the reminder, the pledge, the guarantee that we belong in the presence of God. Not because God lowers his standards, not because God is just some nice old you know, person that doesn't really care, because we are in Jesus, and he takes our sin. Our presence before God is as certain as Christ's presence before God. Our salvation is safe and secure as long as Christ is in heaven. I can no sooner be removed from God's presence than Jesus can. Is Jesus your refuge? Is he your representative before God? If not, you don't know what you are missing. And if he is, flee to him. Go to him. Go to him with who you really are, not just the little things that everyone struggles with. Go to him as your trustworthy refuge. We have a sure and steadfast anchor, and he will pull us into the safe harbor. Amen? Let's pray. God, show us what it would mean to believe this, to trust it, to know that we feel like we are drifting, we are tossed to and fro in the waves, and yet we have an anchor in Jesus Lord, lead us, give us that grace of perseverance that you would complete the work you began in us in Christ Jesus to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.